The warning to author Sarah Menkedick when she was pregnant about what life would be like after giving birth came from a well-meaning friend who said, you'll go into some really dark places. Seriously, you'll have to confront the darkest parts of yourself. The message from the friend wasn't, these will be the best days of your life or cherish these moments. The message about motherhood was dire, a caution wrapped in fear and anxiety. Menkedick soon found that while she could openly discuss the details about daycare and pediatrician appointments, the subject of anxiety was still unmentionable, a taboo topic for women who could not admit such weakness in this role. This is Book Public, a Texas public radio podcast about books. I'm Yvette Benavides. In Ordinary Insanity, Fear, and the Silent Crisis of Motherhood in America, author Sarah Menkedick helps us understand the silent epidemic of anxiety that afflicts increasing numbers of new mothers. In this deeply researched work, Menkedick explores the ways in which motherhood is an experience dominated by anxiety, but not understood or talked about openly. She considers it even a taboo subject for many women spanning different cultures and backgrounds in the United States. The wide-ranging narratives in the book help us understand what anxiety feels like and touches on the psychological, neurobiological, and political implications of the affliction. Anxiety is an epidemic in this country. Over 40 million Americans struggle with the condition and its all-consuming effects. The numbers are higher for women whose issues are compounded or exacerbated by postpartum anxiety. Mengedick's book starts with her own story. She pinpoints the moment her anxiety lit up one day when she encountered a tiny rice grain-sized mouse dropping in a room of her home. She recounted the feeling of anxiety one time during her pregnancy and never mentioned it to anyone again for over a year. The fact of her condition, even now, still too mired in stigma and misunderstanding. Sarah Menkedick helps us demystify the subject. She spoke to us recently about her book, Ordinary Insanity, Fear and the Silent Crisis of Motherhood in America. So here's the first question, and it's probably unusual, but maybe not because it's the opening of your book. <laughs> yeah. It began with mouse poop. Uh-huh. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because it seems like such a ridiculous thing. And I think that's what I was trying to highlight is that, you know, mouse poop, like it's kind of gross, but it seems innocuous, like it's everywhere, right? I mean, most people have encountered it at some point. And so the thought that it could become this horrible, sinister thing that would eventually sort of take over my life is absurd. And yet, um, you know, part of what I'm getting at in, in the book is that that's, you know, that's ordinary insanity, right? Like that's, <laughs> that's the idea is that it is absurd and it is sort of outrageous and yet it's so common and it's so normal and it just becomes normal. So for me, it was like this completely random, you know, moment of seeing a mouse turd. Granted, I was living in, in the cabin in the middle of rural Ohio and just sort of thinking, huh, you know, I wonder if that's 
harmful to my baby. I was very early in pregnancy at that time. And of course, I turned to Google. And then, of course, you know, it's possible to find anywhere within four seconds on Google, like the worst case scenario (laughs) and, you know, this infinitesimal chance that the mouse could be infected with a rare virus that you could somehow get through the mouse poop by, you know, touching your mouth or whatnot. And then you wouldn't feel anything, but the baby would have this horrible complications. You wouldn't know about until delivery and just on and on. And so that moment sort of like launched what would become the next two years of my life in that that established this pattern where I was like, I need to clean the cabin inside and out. There can never be any more mouth poop ever. Right. (laughs) And sort of, I didn't have any space in my brain for the notion that like women have lived for centuries with mouth poop. Right. Uh, I mean, and um, somehow it it mostly turns out, okay, you know, and this is not something I've ever heard of before, but now it's like taken over my whole life. And then once the, once I had sort of cleaned the cabin within an inch of its life, it was like, okay, great. Well, that's taken care of. And little did I know that then, you know, there would be another thing and another thing and another thing and another thing. And there would never sort of be that like blank space again. That is so poignant to think about it that way, because after I had my daughter, I would look around at my friends for years after that. And maybe I still do it today with colleagues at work or friends who are, who are now having their babies. And I feel like, how come they're not going through it? I, it's just, so, I think it's just something we mask and we just refuse to be open about. And especially after reading your book, now I'm always thinking, wow, she's really going through something, but she's hiding it, you know? So I just feel like it can't just have been us, you know, or me. Uh, but I do remember these, I can think back now and realize kind of what was going on. Yeah, it is. It is totally wild. I mean, it's wild that sort of the only way that we still have for describing it is postpartum depression, you know, and and so much of what I get out in the book is just how outdated that is and how sort of um, erroneous that category is and the way that it's conceived of both medically, but also culturally and socially. And so we sort of have this notion that like, either you have like a quote unquote normal experience, in which case it's like, oh, yeah, everything's happy and wonderful. And I had a baby or like you sort of fall into this dark well immediately after your baby is born and then you need to be medicated and you need interventions and then you get over it, you know? Um, and really, I mean, What's most striking is that for many women, not only is this anxiety incredibly common, but, um, but you know, they, they might not have these symptoms of like melancholia or apathy or the kinds of things that we would traditionally associate with depression. Um, they might have just really intense anxiety, and that is rarely flagged as problematic. And, and um, I mean, even women who were going in, like women that I spoke to for the book who were going into their doctor's office two or three times a week to listen to their baby's heartbeat, you know, and no one says to them, this is actually something to be concerned about, right? There's sort of no degree of anxiety that is flagged as problematic. Um, so I think really like the way that we think about postpartum depression is just so limited that it's really hard for a woman who's in the throes of an anxiety that might be totally consuming her life to see it as problematic in the way that you might see a woman who is classically depressed um, as problematic. So, so that's one huge factor. Um, but then I think just what you're getting at, like it, it's just so easy to sort of, well, it's not easy, but women become really accomplished at like making the anxiety seem normal and just like good mothering. And so often, you know, what we think of as good mothering is kind of 
you know, driven by anxiety and, and very much, you know, um, sort of a factor of anxiety. So I think that makes it like extra confusing. So it's shocking to me, like how many people when when I really started to talk more frankly about my experience of anxiety and say, you know, this like actually was tormenting me and I was spending this many hours a day doing this. How many women were like, oh, yeah, you know, I. Um, you know, I wouldn't bathe my baby for fear of this or that, or, you know, I was um, obsessed with air pollution, right? In like a tiny rural town in the middle of nowhere. And you're sort of like, what? And, <laughs> and it was just stunning um, that, that that was all there. But it's like, so I think it is this insidious process where it becomes normalized in all sorts of ways. Like not only does the brain change and become, I think, much more susceptible to this sort of hypervigilance during this time, but also there are just so many like medical, cultural, social factors that sort of sanction that anxiety that it does just kind of get hard baked almost into the experience of mothering. Um, And it's really hard to recognize as like deeply problematic. Yeah, you know that it's sort of um, calling it baby blues and um, telling right. each other, you know, buck up and you'll get over it. It's just hormones and and as if there's just like some magical moment when you're just kind of done with it and it's it's all good <laughs> and it's replaced. Right. It's replaced now by you know these you know made for TV movie moments <laughs> um, that right. don't don't really happen <laughs> at least not. Um, if you're going through the motions and you're putting forth this impression that you're this great mom and you've got it all together. Yeah. But <laughs> it's, yeah. yeah, there's a whole lot going on underneath the surface. Right. And I think what's really tragic about that is that like a lot of women do become really expert at doing that. And it's tragic that we ask them as a society to do that, you know, because I talk in the book about like, you know, it's, it's a little bit dangerous to label women as vulnerable and to label mothers as vulnerable because mothers do often end up being treated like children, you know? And, um, and so I don't want to suggest that that kind of vulnerability is like, Oh, mothers are weak or they're an after they don't know what to do. But rather that like, this is a period when a woman's life and her body and her brain changes dramatically. And there should be a lot of support during that time, you know, to help women through that transition, which like you said, isn't just something where it's like, you, you know, quote unquote, get over it, or you become a mom and it's like, voila, like, you know, the fairy <laughs> wand has touched you and you have a new identity now. You know, it's, it's a painful transition. Um, and there's sort of, I mean, almost no support for women. It's shocking. I mean, more and more so now, but there's nothing sort of built in for women. You know, if you have the resources um, financially and and whatnot to go seek help, and if you're in a major city, you know, then you might be able to find something actually really helpful. Um, But if not, there's nothing, there's no support built in there. You know, you, you have your, all of your prenatal appointments to check on the baby, and then you may have dozens of appointments to measure the baby's weight or whether they're getting enough milk or whatnot and and just one follow-up the entire first year postpartum so it's no wonder that women just like learn to white knuckle their way through it you know you talk about something so interesting in the book that has to do with the way we might learn how women of color experience some of these same issues and there's like these other dimensions i mean i'm mexican-american I grew up yeah. on the border, on the on the Texas-Mexico border. Um, yeah. My pregnancy was full of my mom's 
um, admonitions around curanderismo or um, creencias, right? Like these ideas, these these beliefs from from that were passed down from her grandmother and so on. And so it's it was like, how do I negotiate all this? And it wasn't like I was raised with those beliefs and I had like these, this hardcore value system around them. But something happened right. when I was pregnant that I think I was looking for answers and I wasn't find, discovering them easily. And so I was yeah. leaning on the cultural ideas. And then I thought, I was thinking about this while I was reading your book. Yeah, that's so powerful. I mean, that was one thing that um, that was, you know, so, so significant for me in speaking with the women of color in my book was I remember talking to Marna, who was a single mom in San Francisco. And um, I mean, just first of all, the, the sort of like oppressiveness that she felt being, or the pressure, I guess I could say that she felt as a single mother, you know, all this sort of like weight and historical judgment about being a single black mother in particular, um, that, that just constantly dogged her through her pregnancy and, and postpartum, even though she had a really supportive family and was and, and loved being a mother in many ways, you know. So that was one factor. But then I remember talking to her about this sort of strong black woman syndrome, as it's called, you know, and this is something talked about a fair amount in like the literature and sociology and whatnot. And um, I didn't, you know, I I didn't want to have a really simplistic understanding of it or seem condescending to her. And so, you know, I asked her, I was like, do you feel like this was true for you? Or do you feel like this was like, you know, just just a stereotype that doesn't really exist? And she said, you know, I think this is absolutely a real thing. Um, and it's it's true because black women have to be strong, right? Like we don't have any other choice. It's like the car has gone, you know, over the bridge and into the river. And what else are we going to do? You have to break the windows and get out and be strong. And I, I sort of remember that being this watershed moment for me on the phone, like, you know, that the pressure of like having to take care of these vital needs first and not, you know, I'd like, I was sort of thinking about it in this very intellectualized way, I think. And she wrote the way that she explained it was so vivid and like, I don't have any choice but to be this. And that vulnerability was a real luxury. And there was like no space for her to experience that. And she didn't begin, I mean, she, um, you know, had a lot of anxiety and probably a lot of depression postpartum, and she didn't really have any framework for being able to label it, which isn't unique to her. I mean, that was true for everyone in my book and for me as well. Um, but she didn't begin to figure it out until she, you know, she noticed her daughter was having some issues with anxiety and she sought help for her daughter. And then she began to like get this language and framework for talking about her own experience. But I think what was so powerful there is just, you know, she didn't have, um, a way culturally to sort of express that kind of vulnerability. And it was like, there's so many other issues that black women in particular face mm -hmm. um, that it's sort of like you, you know, I mean, the other part of the strong black woman syndrome is I read about it and talked to black women about it was, you know, it's this notion that like your ancestors have dealt with so much worse you know, um, you're fine, you can deal with it, and you can hold it all together. And you have to like be an example and keep it all together. Um, so there's just this whole other dimension there. Um, I, sorry, very long answer. No, no, it's <laughs> great. It's really fascinating. I actually was just um, speaking to a black midwife for this story that I'm, I'm sort of, I wanted to keep writing about that because I thought it was so interesting. Um, and she was talking about working at 
um, she had worked as a midwife on the south side of Chicago where she grew up. And, you know, she had mothers there who would come back to the hospital weeks after giving birth for formula samples because they didn't have the money to buy formula. And then she um, transferred. She moved to Atlanta and she uh, was working at a private practice with predominantly white women. And she just said, and, you know, she said this in a non-judgmental way, which is subserving, like, it just was really hard to relate to their anxiety, you know, um, because every woman that she had known had had to work, you know, several jobs, nonstop, and it had sort of these, like, fundamental issues, um, you know, not necessarily of survival, but really of, of being able to barely make enough money to, to get by. Um, so I don't think that, like, I think it's dangerous to think about them as two totally separate spheres of existence, but, um, like, like not like, you know, oh, the the white women and, and women of color just like, you know, can't, like their, their experiences are so different. But mm-hmm. I think it's really important to think about the ways I think historically white women have tried to sort of um, make change by appealing to white men and by doing that from the top down. And like if we can integrate ourselves into the sort of capitalist white male society, then will change. And, and I really learned in a visceral way writing the book that that's doesn't, it doesn't work for anyone, that you have to really start with the women who are the most disadvantaged. And when you make the changes that improve their lives, you improve everyone's lives. But see, that just goes to the idea about what literature does, what nonfiction does, what fiction does. Um, and that is it opens up the way for us to cultivate our empathy. I feel like this book is a book that men need to read. I feel like in a lot of ways to understand our own selves as mothers and the things that happen when we're pregnant and after we give birth is is to understand our own mothers. Like my whole yeah. perspective about about my the women in my family is just now so um uh it's just so magnified in interesting ways because I'm thinking about well I wonder what my mom went through or my grandmother who had eight children went through um women of in our lives but maybe also to a certain extent i feel like it has the power in there someplace to help us understand humanity more generally like not to you know not to to overstate it but there's something about this book that i'm seeing as opening a lot of conversations just around um how we treat each other in during you know these big stages of our lives that we never really come back from right right i just feel right. like i'm i'm always kind of mourning um the the person i was before but and then i feel like how different would i be if i hadn't experienced pregnancy and motherhood and frankly i don't really want to go there <laughs> right? Um, but but right. I wonder sometimes, like, I wonder what my brain would be like, you know, because I know I have a different brain right. now. <laughs> right. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Someone asked me that the other day um, in an interview, like, you know, do you think that you would have experienced this anxiety, um, you know, had you not become a mother? And, you know, it's an impossible question to answer. But I mean, I think, like, I, I think I was obsessed for a while after my daughter was born with like trying to put the pieces together of like how did this happen and how did I become such a different person from who I was in my twenties, but also like such a different mother from who I expected I would be and trying to sort of like get back to some ideal that I was clinging to about what kind of 
woman and mother I should be. Um, and I remember this moment with my therapist that was really powerful where I was sort of like, well, like I wanted to just like shake the anxiety off. Like it was sort of like, you know, something icky on my skin and then like get back to how things were. And I was like, you know, like I can't tell like how much of this is me and how much of this is just the anxiety. And I sort of had wanted him to say like, well, you know, once you get rid of this and you just like power through the therapy, it'll, it'll all be fine. And you'll go back to just like traveling around Bolivia with your child. And, and he was sort of like, no, you know, like this might be the new normal and this might be who you are. And, you know, you're going to have to just live with with that. And that was sort of horrifying in the moment. Um, but I also think, you know, that's something that I've had to come to terms with and that is kind of freeing in that there are all these really subtle changes that aren't just the anxiety. They're also about obviously just getting older, but, um, you know, all the ways in which becoming a mother changes your perspective on the world and what matters and uh, what any given day looks like. And, you know, it's it's like so complex and and um, so much more complex than it's made out to be in so much of, you know, the culture, which is why I just think it's so important to have these stories about motherhood. You know, it's still such a void that needs to be filled. But you you worked on this, at, you researched and you did all of this work for this book for so long. And then book comes out and here comes COVID-19. <laughs> Yeah. So how has that, how has this whole pandemic um, colored the book and the the ideas in the book for you or how the ideas about anxiety are received? Yeah, I mean, it's so, it's, it's so complicated because it's like, you know, had you told me, I mean, I remember I was talking to my my editor like in November and we were sort of joking around and she's like, Oh, I hope nothing crazy politically happens next April. You know, <laughs> fast forward six months and um, nothing either of us could have foreseen. Right. And so it's like, had you told me that some sort of event would have happened and, and it would like totally derail the book tour and everything, it would have been like, Oh my gosh, that would be devastating. But by the time you're in it and the world is changing so much and people, you know, are sick and uh, dying. It's like, well, who cares about my book tour? You know, it's almost like such an afterthought. I mean, you, I worked for years on, on this book. I feel like it's the hardest thing I've worked on so far in my career. And like, um, and yet, it, you know, it's amazing how these kinds of circumstances just I, I, like the ego of it doesn't matter as much. Like clearly I want the book to find its readers and to go out in the world and do well. But I remember my, my first reaction when we were sort of settling into all this, we had actually been in Mexico. My husband is from Oaxaca, Mexico. And so we had been visiting family there and we had this very surreal experience where we, we sort of like go off the grid because he's from this very small village in the mountains. And so we go there and we try and like log off. And this was in late February, early March and so we did that, and then we came back to Oaxaca City, and I was like, oh, my God, Elena's school is closed, and, like, the <laughs> university is closed. And so we sort of, like, returned with, like, this big thud to this totally new world. So we were, like, reeling from that by the time we got back to the States and tried to, like, adjust to not having any child care all of a sudden into all of this news coming out. So I couldn't even, like, I didn't even have the mental space to think about the book <laughs> at that point. It was just such an afterthought. I mean, now it's more of a delayed thing where now I'm starting to feel the mourning from it. You know, just like I feel like people are going through these cycles of sort of like calm and grief and, and calm and grief. And now it's like after I've had all these virtual events and the book has been out, it's sort of like now I feel 
what didn't happen with it more. But at the same time, the landscape has just shifted so dramatically that it's like, you know, um, it just seems like all that matters is like we're here and we're okay. And, you know, hopefully we'll figure things out day by day, you know. Sarah Menkedick is the author of Ordinary Insanity, Fear and the Silent Crisis of Motherhood in America. This has been Book Public, a Texas public radio podcast about books. You can write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. You can subscribe to Book Public on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. 